0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.
1: We know that watching all the crises that have occurred in the last several years, both military and economic, that we are at a bit of a fractured time right now. Not only has America had to deal with our own financial crisis, but now we're also dealing with what's going on in other various parts of Europe and what's happening right now in China. But what's amazing to understand is that these crises are multiplying by the year. So, is the quote unquote global system prepared to hold off on all of these issues? Warden Professor Mauro Gian goes through that question and many others in his new book, The Architecture of Collapse. Welcome. Good to see you again. Thank you for
0: having me here.
1: So, how strong or weak is the this global system right now?
0: Well, the global system in terms of, uh, you know, the structure of the global economy and the political and economic institutions that we have in place um, to make, uh, you know, things happen in an orderly way, I think is under a lot of stress. And uh, a very clear symptom of this is what you mentioned, which is that since uh, more or less the year 1982 or 1983, for the last uh, 25 years, we've had many, many, many more crises, banking crises, currency crises, debt crisis in various parts of the world than during the preceding decades, right? So we've kind of, as you suggested, gotten used to reading about a new crisis pretty much every other week in the newspaper. Uh, So this is a sea change from the situation in earlier decades, and uh, it is putting quite a bit of stress on all of those uh, foundations that we hold so dear that essentially help us. Get things done in the global economy.
1: What was kind of the tipping point to to kind of start us on this path of? I mean, you mentioned it was probably what in the early '80s, something something around that time, where we started to see these crises really pop up on a, on a more frequent basis.
0: Well, uh, the 1970s, I think, 70s. give us the uh, give yeah. us the answer, the answer to that. Uh, so I'm I'm mostly focusing, uh, you know, here the argument on what happened after the 1970s and the 1970s. You know were essentially uh, years of uh, turmoil in the world driven by two yeah. things. One was the oil shock, yeah. or actually both oil shocks, 1973 and then 1979. And then the other big issue was uh, the demise of the Bretton Woods system, yeah. the the global financial architecture that yeah. emerged uh, from World War II, yeah. and in particular the decision uh, in 1971 by President Nixon uh, to abandon the, uh, the gold standard, so to speak, right? To uh, uh, put an end to uh, the dollar's uh, convertibility into gold. Uh, And, uh, you know, from then on, what we have is um, fluctuating currencies and uh, we have so much more, uh, you know, volatility uh, in markets. Now, that got worse, uh, I think, uh, in the 1980s and 90s um, because we uh, introduced a number of other policies, uh, you know, around the world, especially uh, policies having to do with um, the liberalization of capital flows Mm -hmm. in a way that uh, I don't think has been constructive.
1: You talk in the book using the the term complexity, and the interesting thing is uh, when you think about what's going on in Europe right now with the eurozone and all the different players that you have there and all the different philosophies, you would think that there's no way it could be anything but complex
0: mm-hmm.
1: yet they they've they've managed for the last what thirty years or so to be able to figure out how to kind of make it work why are we at kind of this tipping point where this term complexity is, has, has really popped up again?
0: Yeah, well, complexity, uh, you know, I actually view it as something that is not necessarily bad. Right. In the sense that, uh, you know, it goes without saying that uh, everything in the world has become more complex. We have more countries in the world today than ever before. We have nearly 200, right? And uh, we have uh, more relationships among them. And some of those relationships, like trade, or like the activity of multinational firms that invest, uh, you know, in various markets. Yeah. Uh, all of those kinds of linkages, uh, they actually, I think, uh, provide for firewalls, for cushions. Uh, you know, we have more uh, ways uh, to cope with uh, disturbances or with shocks, with mm-hmm. a small crises in one part of the global system, so that they don't spread throughout. What I think, uh, uh, what I think, the problem lies, and this is what I explain in the book uh, in detail is uh, with a related concept, which is that of coupling. That is to say, to yeah. what extent the different components of the global system and the global economy are so tightly uh, you know, tied to one another that there's very little room for error. And if there's a disturbance someplace and all of the parts are very tightly coupled, then essentially that disturbance, that shock, reverberates throughout the entire system, diffuses yeah. extremely quickly, right? Uh, now, I actually believe that, uh, uh, and the IMF, by the way, the International Monetary Fund has finally recognized this yeah. uh, in a couple of a couple of weeks ago, that there are three main things that are driving this. I mean, one is the enormous rise in portfolio investment, mm-hmm. which is mostly sh- short-term capital flows or can be short-term capital flows, uh, which is the growth of uh, cross-border banking, yeah. and then lastly, the enormous growth in currency trading uh, that has, uh, you know, created a situation in which. Uh, Uh, You know, whenever there is a deviation from the normal state of markets in some part of the world, it very quickly spreads, you know, throughout uh, the entire system. And I I do want to bring to your attention because uh, this um, uh, article that three um, IMF economists published uh, about, uh, uh, you know, in early June uh, made the headlines around the world because it was the first time that the IMF recognized that the kind of liberalization of short-term capital flows that it had imposed on countries mm-hmm. during the 1980s and 90s has increased the probability of crisis. And they provide some estimates to the effect that the probability of a crisis, especially in emerging markets these days, is three times greater for those situations in which there are very high levels yeah. of short-term capital flows. So it's the first time that the AMF has recognized this, and this happened in early June of this year. And it's, it's remarkable that it has taken you know, 20 years uh, for the global financial community to understand uh, that some of the steps that were taken at liberalization in the 1980s and 90s have had the opposite effect, right? <laughs> yeah. it, they were meant to be um, reforms that would stabilize the situation, they were meant to be reforms that would help allocate capital more efficiently around the world. Yeah. And what we're seeing is that the effects have been, you know, most of the time quite negative.
1: We're talking with Mauro Guillen, Wharton professor, about his new book, The Architecture of Collapse. You also uh, talk also the the link of of FDI, foreign direct investment, towards complexity as well.
0: Absolutely. And foreign direct investment is, uh, unlike portfolio investment, is when companies, uh, you know, set up a plant in a foreign location or they make an acquisition. And they do that not uh, as a financial investment. They do that because they want to do business in that part of Mm -hmm. the world, right? Um, And uh, from many different kinds of points of view. This is uh, actually something that I strongly believe over the last uh, few decades has contributed to the stability of the global system, right? Um, So, for example, a very simple example, consider a Japanese firm back, let's say, in the 1960s that was producing in Japan electronics, automobiles, whatever it is, right? And it was exporting throughout the world. That company, right, and the Japanese economy itself as a result, was more exposed to shocks, right? For example, things that would affect the exchange rate, yeah, because it was producing in just one place and selling throughout the world. Then the same company, right, 20 or 30 years later, right, let's say like Toyota yeah. or like Hitachi <clears throat> or Sony, a company that, that uh, by now has manufacturing facilities in 50 different countries around the world. And that kind of a network, a production network that they built through foreign direct investment yeah. enables them to, you know, deal with disturbances with shocks in different parts of the world much better right they're not as exposed Mm -hmm. in a way they're naturally hedged against disturbances right because they have you know a network structure of facilities right yeah Uh, around the world so i personally consider foreign direct investment unlike portfolio investment as a stabilizing factor as something that contributes through complexity to the stability of the global economy
1: so in that respect the ability of companies to be able to have so many pieces in in so many different parts of the world it 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 feels like it's it's almost the direct opposite of this coupling that you're talking about especially with countries that are so tightly knit with one another there's no there's no lag there's no give when you know in comparison to a company which may have 20 different locations around the globe where they can pass off some of the some of the angst to another part of the company. Absolutely,
0: and they can exercise their options. They can rearrange their operations in response to, uh, you know, sudden unanticipated changes in the uh, in the environment. But the other thing that I think is very important to keep in mind is that at the same time that we've seen a proliferation of this crisis throughout the world, yeah. we've also seen over the last 15 or 20 years a weakening of the state, a weakening of governments, right? Governments, in other words, in the world having... Fewer tools at their disposal. We see this, for example, uh, from the point of view that governments no longer can use, for the most part, fiscal policy. Because they are very high up to their necks into debt, right? So they have to then just use monetary policy, right? But we see this um, in in many other uh, other areas. Uh, We see this in the developing world with the phenomenon of failed states. So we have about 50 countries in the world that fall under the category of failed states. Uh, uh, an extreme case, of course, would be Libya these days, right? Sure, or, or, yeah. or Afghanistan. But there's many, many others, right? Up to um, about 48 or 49, nearly 50 countries that have various degrees of state failure. And so they find it very difficult to cope with these shocks when they come their way, right? Yeah. Uh, so in other words, we've seen a weakening, a deterioration of uh, state structures around the world. And if I may, just a couple of other things that are making the situation really difficult. Uh-huh. One is the increase in income inequality. And wealth inequality, because yeah. Yeah. that essentially, uh, I think, uh, puts a lot of pressure on the political system to handle the situation. It increases the frictions. It increases the stakes whenever there's an election. We're seeing this in rich countries such as uh, Europe or yeah. the United States. Uh, you know that, that the issue of inequality is, uh, you know, um, reshaping uh, the political, you know, arena, right? And we also see this in emerging markets where inequality has been growing very quickly. Uh-huh. Uh, so all of these changes, I think, are conspiring to produce a situation in which not only there are more crises, but also we have fewer tools at our disposal to cope with whatever crisis.
1: It's interesting you bring up the the, the income inequality because we talk about it so much here, yet we don't necessarily think of it as as a global issue. And just how you laid that out right there, I'm sure there are a lot of of smaller countries, emerging economies right now, that probably the effect of in income inequality is maybe greater than it is in some of the larger countries because of how the political system is set up and and, and just how having that level of, of finance for the upper end of the scale really is, is an important factor for them.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And as you just pointed out, income inequality has grown in many different parts of the world. Yeah. It has been growing on in Eastern Europe after you know the opening of those economies. Yeah, uh, It has been growing in China uh, as a result of growth. Now, again, uh, China is, as a, as a country, better off, right, after sure. all this growth. Yeah. But it has generated tensions and has generated uh, inequality, especially between the rural areas and the urban areas. And uh, we see this in other uh, South and uh, East Asian countries. We see this in parts of Africa, all over the world, and of course in most of Western Europe and here in the United States. Yeah. And again, this is putting an enormous pressure on the political system. The political system you know, is uh, one of our lines of defense against crisis. We want politicians and policy makers to have the tools at their disposal to cope with these you know, difficult situations whenever right. there's a banking crisis, or there is a, a debt crisis, or a currency yeah. crisis. But right now, uh, you know, the background of growing inequality, I think, is undermining the ability of politicians to really get things done. And, uh, you know, it has also given, you know, a room for extremist parties, populist parties to grow, uh, which, uh, again, is contributing to, um, you know, the lack of stability.
1: Wharton's Mauro Guillen joins us here in the studio. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. His book, The Architecture of Collapse, you talk in the book about that the relationship between the U.S. and China, which is making quite a bit of news these days. Uh, it has been kind of f- fractured, I guess would be a, a safe word to use for for a, a good long period of time, yet President Obama is trying to make inroads in, in changing that. Uh, they are two of the most important economies in, in the world, yet it, China just, it doesn't seem to be able to get to the level of where the global economy needs them. Mm-hmm. what What is the biggest concern for you, one, with China, but two, with the relationship that maybe you, the U.S. and China need to have?
0: Yeah, so I, I, I am concerned about that relationship. And as you mentioned, is by far the single most important bilateral relationship that we have in the global economy, right, between yep. China and the yep. U.S. And these are two economies that, you know, have evolved in major ways over the last 30 years. China used to be, you know, destitute, and now yep. it is a global power, both financially and economically, and in terms of trade, of course. And the United States, uh, well, it's a technologically driven society and uh, economy, which wasn't uh, 30 years ago, right? Yeah. My concern is that the terms of that relationship, the way in which that relationship is structured, have not evolved, right? Yeah. We're still under the old system that the United States is the consumer of last resort, and China is providing all the funding for all our consumption, right? China has an excess of savings, and we have an excess of consumption, right? Yeah, yeah. And the entire relationship is driven uh, on the basis or by by, by that uh, uh, by those two, uh, two assumptions there. And, uh, you know, there, there is a limit as to how much longer that relationship can last. And uh, now, of course, those two economies are you know, uh, very important, very central to the to the world. And as you mentioned, uh, part of the issue is that uh, China, which is facing some domestic problems now yeah. with its own economy, uh, the issue is that um, it's still, you know, uh, far away in terms of uh, how many years it will take them uh, to play uh, a more important and constructive role globally, uh, in part because uh, they don't have the mechanisms at their disposal. They don't have the yeah. currency that people may trust. Uh, They don't have the institutions that people uh, would be able to relate to. And so we have this big economy in the world, almost as big as the U.S., uh, which uh, is increasingly asserting itself, especially in its own region, right, politically and militarily and so on and so forth. Uh, But we don't have any good established channels to accommodate them, right? They've become the largest global trading power. They're about to become, you know, possibly the largest economy and so on and so forth. Uh, But without really having the structures in place that would enable the world to, you know, welcome China as a major, you know, decision-making power along with, you know, Europe, United States, India, and so on and so forth. But you
1: also mentioned the fact that, uh, and said a second ago, about the, the economic problems they're having at home right now. Absolutely. One... The the problem with unemployment, Foxconn just getting rid of 60,000 people for robots. Uh, two, they've got the South China Sea issue that, that's playing up right now. So in terms of level of importance, I guess maybe they're both important, but the relationship outside of China with other entities, whether it be in Asia or with the United States, compared to what they have to do in their own homeland and getting that economy squared away and and Issues with infrastructure. No, oh, absolutely. It, it is it is one more important than the other right now, or I mean, well, they no, both, both have a great important. level. No, yeah. both
0: are important, and it's uh, uh, undeniably the case that also in the case of the United States that domestic dynamics affect you know, your, your your foreign policies, right? I mean, yeah. There's no question about that. I mean, foreign policy doesn't, doesn't exist in isolation of the uh, uh, realities uh, domestically, internal to the country. But you just mentioned, uh, you know, a couple of the problems that China is facing. I mean, but there's many others. There's pollution, especially sure. in cities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is environmental degradation of rivers and watersheds. Uh, you have population aging, so China is now, along with Japan and Germany, one of the countries that is aging most rapidly. Yeah. Uh, well, a few months ago, they said that they were going to relax the one-child policy. I don't know whether it's going to have a big impact or not, right. or it's going to be soon enough, right, to have uh, a beneficial effect. Uh, but those, all of those, are big challenges. Um, you know, we haven't even mentioned the banking sector.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. And
0: uh, yep. all that is hidden there, right, in terms of uh, bad loans and uh, and so on and so forth. So. Yes, China has no shortage of problems. The issue, of course, is that now China has become so big and so influential that if anything goes wrong over there, uh, it would affect uh, the rest of the world in a very negative way. So we should all be, you know, uh, hoping that uh, things get sorted out in China yeah. and that the economy continues to grow at a pace where political, you know, turmoil doesn't occur and uh, in a way that, um, you know, essentially delivers the kinds of, uh, you know, economic. Uh, uh, you know, well-being that the population has been expecting for a long time, right? Yeah. There's a still several hundred million poor people in China, especially in rural areas. Yeah. They're waiting for their, you know, for the moment in which uh, they may join the middle class, just as, uh, you know, the 300 or 350 million people who have already become middle class in China uh, had, right? So they want that chance. So I think it's in the interest of everyone, especially the United States, but everybody in the world, that uh, the Chinese economy does well, yeah. and that China brings all of these tensions under control.
1: You mentioned also, that, uh, speaking of something you just talked about, is not only does China have a problem with an aging population, there are so many other countries around the globe that are having this problem oh, yeah. with aging populations, yeah. and it, you almost get the feeling like there's going to be a segment, maybe a 10 to 15-year block, where we're seeing you know, quite a few... Fewer people on the globe because a lot of the younger people are deciding to wait, at least here in the United States, maybe other places around the globe, wait till their mid-30s, maybe later 30s to have that family. They want to do all this. You know, it's, it's going to be a very interesting dynamic to have to deal with uh, on a global
0: perspective. Well, absolutely. And at the same time, let's not forget, we still have uh, quite uh, rapid population growth in other parts of the world, Sub-Saharan Africa, yeah. parts of the Middle East, parts of South Asia. And, uh, you know, this is also important in terms of the migration crisis that we're seeing in the world, yeah. right? So we have uh, excessive numbers of people in some parts of the world, uh, therefore very high youth unemployment. And then we have a scarcity in other parts of the world. But at the same time, we don't have, you know, the right framework to think about how can we handle these imbalances you know, at the global level as opposed to, you know, at the local level.
1: And it becomes a bigger problem for a lot of those other countries where those people are moving to.
0: No, absolutely. And again,
1: it goes back to having the right tools to be able to handle a situation like that. Absolutely. We're talking with uh, Wharton Professor Morrow Guillen about his book, The Architecture of Collapse. Here on Knowledge of Wharton, here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. So what's your expectation then as you look at the, this global system going forward for the next next 20 years or so? So many things can can factor and change that. Obviously, what's going on in Europe right now, uh, various entities in in China, and as you mentioned, Africa, is this going to be a, a, a strong entity, the global system, going forward in the next couple of decades?
0: Yeah. Well, I think, uh, uh, you know, it depends on, on on a couple of factors, right? I mean, when you think about it, let's say five or 10 years down the road, right? So, yeah. um, so that most uh, listeners think that, that this may have an impact on them, right? Yeah. If we say 20, yeah. you know, uh, some of generation. them will say, all right, somebody else, uh, you know, yeah. uh, deals with that. Uh, I think there are some distinct, uh, you know, risks here in the sense that we could get into another round of uh, crisis, right, yep. again, right? That, that's one, you know, distinct, I think, uh, kind of risk that we're uh, facing. But the other one is just uh, anomie, right? It's like that we become so indifferent to the fact that, uh, you know, oh, we have like a very slow growth in many parts of the global economy. Or we have high unemployment, which, by the way, is happening not only in Europe, it's also happening as I just mentioned, in some emerging markets yep. or bottom of the pyramid markets yep. where, you know, there's a lot of young people who, uh, who don't have jobs. And uh, I think it's the uh, the sense that, uh, you know, it will be hard to uh, introduce an element of dynamism, right? I think our only hope is that, um, you know, not all economies go at the same time into those types of situations. So right now, right. for instance, well, India is doing pretty well, right? And some countries in Sub-Saharan Africa continue to do rather well, for example, Ethiopia, right? But you know, the problem is that if things uh, in the economies that are most interconnected with the rest of the world, like Europe, United States, or China, if they're not going really well, then the beneficial effects don't spread widely, right? Because Mm -hmm. the Indian economy is not an export-oriented economy. Right, Right, right. It has a modest contribution to global trade. So it doesn't really you know, help the rest of the world as much. And that's why I think uh, we should continue to pay a lot of attention to what's going on in China, Europe, and the United States, because those are by far the three large regions of the world that have the most impact on the global economy, in terms of trade, in terms of investment, uh, just uh, in terms of financial markets, everything. Right. Right? And uh, the lack of dynamism, uh, or like in China, the deceleration of the economy, that Essentially, I think, spells trouble, right, in this interconnected world. Yeah, because the temptation, as you know, is uh, interconnected world, I'm not doing well, let me disconnect, right? right? Exactly. And that's what yeah. happened, yeah. Uh, so, let me, let me, uh, get know, away from the other people's get off problems, the train, yeah. right? Yeah. Right, and that's what happened in the 1930s, if you remember. Yeah, in the 1930s, it happened in the form of um, protectionism. Now, today, we have international treaties that prevent countries from engaging in protectionism mm-hmm. in the old way, which was to, to establish tariffs or, or restrictions. But there's other ways in which you can protect. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, over the last six or seven years, we've seen many countries in the world engage in another kind of protectionism, uh, which can be equally harmful, which is ma- currency manipulation. Sure, yeah. Right? Yep. And as you yep. know, many headlines yep. uh, in newspapers <laughs> have uh, brought to our attention that, you know, countries as disparate as Japan or uh, China... Uh, Switzerland yep. the United States and so on and so forth have at various points since the crisis since the 2008 crisis engaged in currency manipulation this is very dangerous very dangerous
1: great to see you again thanks very much for coming over thank you so much for having me Wharton's Maro Guillen joining us the book is The Architecture of Collapse back and more of the show in just a minute Knowledge of Wharton on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio powered by the Wharton School
0: for more business news and analysis from Knowledge of Wharton